0: Four months elapsed, April came, the month of spring, the month of change. The course of time had flowed through the interval since the winter peacefully and happily in our new home. I had turned my long leisure to good account, had largely increased my sources of employment, and had placed our means of subsistence on surer grounds. Freed from the suspense and the anxiety which had tried her so sorely and hung over her so long, Marianne's spirits rallied, and her natural energy of character began to assert itself again, with something, if not all, of the freedom and the vigor of former times. More pliable under change than her sister, Laura showed more plainly the progress made by the healing influences of her new life. The worn and wasted look which had prematurely aged her face was fast leaving it, and the expression which had been the first of its charms in past days was the first of its beauties that now returned. My closest observations of her detected but one serious result of the conspiracy which had once threatened her reason and her life. Her memory of events from the period of her leaving Blackwater Park to the period of our meeting in the burial ground of Limeridge Church was lost beyond all hope of recovery, At the slightest reference to that time, she changed and trembled still. Her words became confused. Her memory wandered and lost itself as helplessly as ever. Here, and here only, the traces of the past lay deep, too deep to be effaced. In all else, she was now so far on the way to recovery that on her best and brightest days, she sometimes looked and spoke like the Laura of old times the happy change wrought its natural result in us both. From their long slumber on her side and on mine, those imperishable memories of our past life in Cumberland now awoke, which were one and all alike, the memories of our love. Gradually and insensibly, our daily relations towards each other became constrained. The fond words which I had spoken to her so naturally in the days of her sorrow and her suffering faltered strangely on my lips. In the time when my dread of losing her was most present to my mind, I had always kissed her when she left me at night and when she met me in the morning. The kiss seemed now to have dropped between us, to be lost out of our lives. Our hands began to tremble again when they met. We hardly ever looked long at one another out of Marianne's presence. The talk often flagged between us "'When we were alone, when I touched her by accident, "'I felt my heart beating fast, as it used to beat, at Limeritch House. "'I saw the lovely, answering flush growing again in her cheeks, "'as if we were back among the Cumberland Hills, in our past characters of Master and Pupil once more. "'She had long intervals of silence and thoughtfulness, "'and denied she'd been thinking when Marianne asked her the question.' I surprised myself one day, neglecting my work, to dream over the little watercolor portrait of her which I had taken in the summer-house where we first met, just as I used to neglect Mr. Fairley's drawings to dream over the same likeness when it was newly finished in the bygone time. Changed as all the circumstances now were, our position towards each other in the golden days of our first companionship seemed to be revived with the revival of our love It was as if time had drifted us back on the wreck of our early hopes, to the old familiar shore. To any other woman I could have spoken the decisive words which I still hesitated to speak to her. The utter helplessness of her position, her friendless dependence on all the forbearing gentleness that I could show her, my fear of touching too soon some secret sensitiveness in her which my instinct as a man might not have been fine enough to discover, these considerations, and others like them, kept me self-distrustfully silent. And yet I knew that the restraint on both sides must be ended, that the relations in which we stood towards one another must be altered in some settled manner for the future, and that it rested with me, in the first instance, to recognize the necessity for a change." The more I thought of our position, the harder the attempt to alter it appeared, while the domestic conditions on which we three had been living together since the winter remained undisturbed. I cannot account for the capricious state of mind in which this feeling originated. But the idea nevertheless possessed me that some previous change of place and circumstances, some sudden break in the quiet monotony of our lives, so managed as to vary the home aspect under which we had been accustomed to see each other, might prepare the way for me to speak, and might make it easier and less embarrassing for Laura and Marianne to hear. With this purpose in view, I said one morning that I thought we had all earned a little holiday and a change of scene. After some consideration, it was decided that we should go for a fortnight to the seaside. On the next day, we left Fulham for a quiet town on the south coast. At that early season of the year we were the only visitors in the place. The cliffs, the beach, and the walks inland were all in the solitary condition which was most welcome to us. The air was mild. The prospects over hill and wood and down were beautifully varied by the shifting April light and shade. And the restless sea leapt under our windows as if it felt like the land, the glow and freshness of spring." I owed it to Marianne to consult her before I spoke to Laura, and to be guided afterwards by her advice. On the third day from our arrival, I found a fit opportunity of speaking to her alone. The moment we looked at one another, her quick instinct detected the thought in my mind before I could give it expression. With her customary energy and directness, she spoke at once, and spoke first. "'You were thinking of that subject which was mentioned between us "'on the evening of your return from Hampshire,' she said. "'I have been expecting you to allude to it for some time past. "'There must be a change in our little household, Walter. "'We cannot go on much longer as we are now. "'I see it as plainly as you do, as plainly as Laura sees it, "'though she says nothing. "'How strangely the old times in Cumberland seem to have come back.' you and I are together again, and the one subject of interest between us is Laura once more. I could almost fancy that this room is the summer-house at Limeridge, and that those waves beyond us are beating on our seashore. I was guided by your advice in those past days, I said, and now, Marianne, with reliance tenfold greater, I will be guided by it again. She answered by pressing my hand. I saw that she was deeply touched by my reference to the past. We sat together near the window, and while I spoke and she listened, we looked at the glory of the sunlight shining on the majesty of the sea. Whatever comes of this confidence between us, I said, whether it ends happily or sorrowfully, for me, Laura's interests will still be the interests of my life. When we leave this place, on whatever terms we leave it, "'My determination to wrest from Count Fosco the confession "'which I failed to obtain from his accomplice "'goes back with me to London, as certainly as I go back myself. "'Neither you nor I can tell how that man may turn on me "'if I bring him to bay. "'We only know, by his own words and actions, "'that he is capable of striking at me through Laura "'without a moment's hesitation or a moment's remorse.' "'In our present position I have no claim on her "'which society sanctions, which the law allows, "'to strengthen me in resisting him and in protecting her. "'This places me at a serious disadvantage. "'If I am to fight our cause with the Count, "'strong in the consciousness of Laura's safety, "'I must fight it for my wife. "'Do you agree to that, Marianne, so far?' "'To every word of it she answered.' "'I will not plead out of my own heart,' I went on. "'I will not appeal to the love which has survived all changes and all shocks. "'I will rest my only vindication of myself for thinking of her "'and speaking of her as my wife, on what I have just said. "'If the chance of forcing a confession from the Count is, as I believe it to be, "'the last chance left of publicly establishing the fact of Laura's existence, "'the least selfish reason that I can advance for our marriage "'is recognized by us both. "'But I may be wrong in my conviction. "'Other means of achieving our purpose may be in our power, "'which are less uncertain and less dangerous. "'I have searched anxiously in my own mind for those means, "'and I have not found them. "'Have you?' "'No. "'I have thought about it too, and thought in vain.' In all likelihood, I continued, the same questions have occurred to you in considering this difficult subject, which have occurred to me. Ought we to return with her to Limeridge, now that she is like herself again, and trust to the recognition of her by the people of the village, or by the children at the school? Ought we to appeal to the practical test of her handwriting? Suppose we did so. Suppose the recognition of her obtained, and the identity of the handwriting established, would success in both those cases do more than supply an excellent foundation for a trial in a court of law? Would the recognition and the handwriting prove her identity to Mr. Fairley and take her back to Limeridge House, against the evidence of her aunt, against the evidence of the medical certificate, against the fact of the funeral and the fact of the inscription on the tomb? No. We could only hope to succeed in throwing a serious doubt on the assertion of her death. A doubt... "'which nothing short of a legal inquiry can settle. "'I will assume that we possess, "'what we have certainly not got, "'money enough to carry this inquiry on through all its stages. "'I will assume that Mr. Fairley's prejudices "'might be reasoned away, "'that the false testimony of the Count and his wife "'and all the rest of the false testimony "'might be confuted, "'that the recognition could not possibly be ascribed "'to a mistake between Laura and Anne Catherick.' or the handwriting be declared by our enemies to be a clever fraud. All these are assumptions which, more or less, set plain probabilities at defiance. But let them pass, and let us ask ourselves what would be the first consequence, or the first questions put to Laura herself, on the subject of the conspiracy. We know only too well what the consequence would be, for we know that she has never recovered her memory of what happened to her in London." "'Examine her privately, or examine her publicly. "'She is utterly incapable of assisting the assertion of her own case. "'If you don't see this, Marianne, as plainly as I see it, "'we will go to Limeridge and try the experiment tomorrow.' "'I do see it, Walter. "'Even if we had the means of paying all the law expenses, "'even if we succeeded in the end, "'the delays would be unendurable, "'the perpetual suspense after what we have suffered already.' "'would be heartbreaking. "'You are right about the hopelessness of going to Limeridge. "'I wish I could feel sure that you were right also "'in determining to try that last chance with the Count. "'Is it a chance at all?' "'Beyond a doubt, yes. "'It is the chance of recovering the lost date "'of Laura's journey to London. "'Without returning to the reasons I gave you some time since, "'I am still as firmly persuaded as ever,' that there is a discrepancy between the date of that journey and the date on the certificate of death. There lies the weak point of the whole conspiracy. It crumbles to pieces if we attack it in that way, and the means of attacking it are in possession of the Count. If I succeed in wresting them from him, the object of your life and mine is fulfilled. If I fail, the wrong that Laura has suffered will, in this world, never be redressed." "'Do you fear failure yourself, Walter?' "'I dare not anticipate success, "'and for that very reason, Marianne, "'I speak openly and plainly as I have spoken now. "'In my heart and my conscience I can say it. "'Laura's hopes for the future are at their lowest ebb. "'I know that her fortune is gone. "'I know that the last chance of restoring her to her place in the world "'lies at the mercy of her worst enemy,' of a man who is now absolutely unassailable, and who may remain unassailable to the end. With every worldly advantage gone from her, with all prospect of recovering her rank and station more than doubtful, with no clearer future before her than the future which her husband can provide, the poor drawing-master may harmlessly open his heart at last." In the days of her prosperity, Marianne, I was only the teacher who guided her hand. I ask for it, in her adversity, as the hand of my wife. Marianne's eyes met mine affectionately. I could say no more. My heart was full. My lips were trembling. In spite of myself, I was in danger of appealing to her pity. I got up to leave the room. She rose at the same moment, laid her hand gently on my shoulder, and stopped me. "'Walter,' she said, "'I once parted you both for your good and for hers. "'Wait here, my brother, wait, my dearest, best friend, "'till Laura comes and tells you what I have done now.' "'For the first time since the farewell morning at Limeridge, "'she touched my forehead with her lips. "'A tear dropped on my face as she kissed me. "'She turned quickly, pointed to the chair from which I had risen, "'and left the room. I sat down alone at the window to wait through the crisis of my life. My mind in that breathless interval felt like a total blank. I was conscious of nothing but a painful intensity of all familiar perceptions. The sun grew blinding bright. The white seabirds chasing each other far beyond me seemed to be flitting before my face. The mellow murmur of the waves on the beach was like thunder in my ears. The door opened, and Laura came in alone. So she had entered the breakfast-room at Limeridge House on the morning when we parted. Slowly and falteringly, in sorrow and in hesitation, she had once approached me. Now she came with the haste of happiness in her feet, with the light of happiness radiant in her face. Of their own accord, those dear arms clasped themselves round me, Of their own accord, the sweet lips came to meet mine. My darling, she whispered, we may own we love each other now. Her head nestled with a tender contentedness on my bosom. Oh, she said innocently, I am so happy at last. Ten days later, we were happier still. We were married. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.